All right. Well, thank you, John. And I'm thankful to be able to be part of that softball team. I'm actually pushing 40 now, and so actually playing with the young guys, I just kind of keeps me, keeps me young. So, all right. Well, I hope all of you guys had a wonderful 4th of July weekend. I know that uh, a little bit of a bummer feels raining on the 4th itself. And I know that they had canceled some of the, the fireworks shows and, and things of that nature. But, but actually, I do, as I was kind of bummed about not being able to see a fireworks show, I actually was on the Facebook uh, the other day, and I noticed that Jason Muckley had this awesome little tweet there where it says, who needs fireworks, right? God is putting on a sick display outside tonight. Hashtag the heavens declare his majesty. I, I love that perspective. <laughs> But, you know, despite the rain, um, our family and I had a wonderful time. We were able to, to visit with some friends in the area, and we were watching some World Cup soccer and, and just had a, had a great time. But I, I don't know if it's just me, but, but I think there's something special about just being here in, in the Boston area around this time, around the 4th of July. It's, there's something about that that just feels right. And, and I think it feels right because, you know, it's right here in this Boston area. It was the birthplace of the American Revolution. You know, my wife and I, uh, Rebecca, we moved to Boston about 10 years ago. And, and when we first got here, you know, we did like your typical touristy things. We went to, you know, Boston Commons and we saw, um, you know, went to Fenway Park. Uh, but we also spent a day walking along the Freedom Trail. Now, growing up in Chicago, I'd only heard about the Revolutionary War uh, from our history books. And, and so it was really neat to be able to kind of see some of these spots that you only saw in books and just kind of walk around the, the different venues. You know, on the trail, I remember stepping into Faneuil Hall you know, where the colonialists, you know, first protested against the Sugar Act and, and the, the Stamp Act. I also stopped by the, the, the site of the Boston Massacre, where the British soldiers fired, you know, and killed about a half a dozen innocent victims. You know, and then as we made our way toward Paul Revere's home, you know, I only heard these stories and these poems about what that ride must have been like. But, but being there helped me to sort of visualize and imagine what it was like for him to get on his horse, right, and ride through Charlestown all the way to Lexington, all the while calling his fellow patriots to come and bear arms, right, all the while shouting, you know, the Redcoats are coming, the Redcoats are coming, the Redcoats are coming. See, the original patriots, they gave their lives so that we would be free today. You know, they gave their lives so that we can choose our own destinies instead of our destinies being chosen for us based on the whims of a king thousands of miles away. See, they gave their lives so that we can be free to life, liberty, and to pursue our own happiness. You know, when Jesus came on the earth, he was born in a context very similar to this. See, I think it's so easy for us to forget that most of the scripture was written during a time of captivity and of bondage. See, they were not written from a perspective of people that were free, but, but they were written from people that were bound and long for freedom. And if you were to read the scriptures, you would, you would see how the Jews were enslaved by the Egyptians, right? And later the Babylonians, and then they were conquered by the Assyrians and the Philistines and the Persians. Later, they were ruled by the Greeks. And now, when Jesus stepped into the scene, they were under the thumb of Roman rule. Can you imagine stepping into history in that context? Can you imagine living at a time when everyone around you only knew what it was like to be in bondage, right? From family to family, from generation to generation. They were born into a world where they were shuffled from one leader to another, 
one king to another, right? From one ruler to another. And as the Jews read the scriptures, they, they heard stories about how God would one day bring about their freedom. But, you know, many of them, they probably looked around and they probably felt like it was more like a pipe dream than a possible reality. It was a nice ideal. Right? It might have seemed so elusive, almost magical. Perhaps it almost felt like a fairy tale. This was the context that Jesus was born into. It wasn't a world of freedom, but it was a world of bondage. Now imagine listening to these words from Jesus in John chapter 8. And how it would have possibly resonated with the people who heard them. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to John chapter 8, verses 31 to 36. Or if you have it on your Bible app, it will also be on the screen. It's John chapter 8, verses 31 to 36. Hear the word of the Lord. Where it says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say that you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. And so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If the son sets you free... You will be free indeed. And as John mentioned a few weeks ago, we've been in a series called the Red Letter Edition, where we've been looking at various teachings that Jesus gave while he was here on earth. And in the passage we just read, Jesus offers his people who are in bondage this declaration of freedom. Right? They give them this path toward liberation. See, but during this time, uh, the Jews only saw the big problem that was right in front of them. And they believed that God would one day raise a deliverer. You know, the cry of many of their hearts is, if only God would bring someone to help us end the Roman rule. Right? If only God would bring us a, a, a prophet. If only God would bring us a Messiah. And so I sort of wonder how perplexing, if not maybe confusing it must have been, for Jesus' followers to have heard these words in verse 34, where it says, truly, Truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. See, the Jews only saw the problem around them, right? They, they could see the things that were right in front of them, you know, namely the Romans. But what Jesus saw was a different sort of problem. See, the Jews only saw what, could they, what they could see with their eyes, which was their captivity. But they didn't see what Jesus saw and the problem he really wanted to address, they only saw the, what they could feel, which was the Roman guards surrounding their city. See, but that wasn't the problem that Jesus wanted to address. Uh, to be clear, you know, it, it, it wasn't, Jesus wasn't saying that being role, you know, ruled by Rome was sort of a bed of roses and everything was honky-dory. Right? It, it was clearly a problem. See, but the bondage that Jesus wanted to free them from wasn't a physical one, nor was it a political one. 
but it was ultimately a spiritual one. It's because many of our problems, some of our biggest problems in life, are often not physical or political, even though it might seem that way. But it's often spiritual. So you read the passage again in verse 34. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And this is a problem that Jesus is calling on us as well, that we also have the same issue at hand. And the first step to, to being free is to recognize that you're not free. Right? It's to recognize that we are all in bondage. I think Jesus is saying that we need to recognize that we are in, in slavery to sin. Now, I know that some of you could probably testify to this, you know, on the power of sin. Uh, it, it, perhaps some of us have, have battled through various addictions or, or certain types of problems and struggles, you know, whether it be with alcohol or, or with drugs or, or perhaps pornography, other things like that. And, and if you've seen these various types of addictions, you probably understand just how sin can absolutely enslave you you know for all of us though others of us though I, I, i'm guessing that some of us might be thinking you know isn't this a bit of an exaggeration i, I mean maybe a little bit of an overstatement i mean is, is jesus really saying that all of us are enslaved to sin interestingly in verse 33 even some of the jews at that time were in denial even of the roman captors and said hey we're not enslaved to anybody even though they could look around and see the Roman guards surrounding them. I think in a similar way, I think perhaps some of us might be sort of in denial of the captivity that we have around us as regards to sin. And all because we might not address it or believe it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not true. So maybe let's look at it another way. You know, uh, don't we all have bad habits? Or character flaws that we wish that we can change. But you just feel like you just don't have the strength to do so. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, perhaps for some of you, it, it's, I have this, you know, maybe you have a short temper, right? You just get frustrated really, really easily. Maybe for others of you, you get really impatient on the road. When you're driving down one, you know, 128 and you see someone cut you off, you get really, really upset. Right? Perhaps for others, it, it's gossiping at work. You just can't help yourself. You just need to get that latest news and tell people about what you've heard. Right? Then we all have something in our lives that we wish that we could change, but we simply can't. We sort of feel stuck about something. It, it's almost like you have like this bungee cord that, that's strapped to the back of you. And every time you're about to get out, right, it just pulls you back in, sort of like that ride on bungee run. Sometimes you just feel that these certain habits that we have just cannot get, we just can't get out of it. We can't get released from it. If that's you, you're certainly not alone. See, listen listen to what the Apostle Paul or or what St. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 7, where he says that we know the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. And here it is. It says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But I hate, but what I do, what I hate to do. And I do what I do not want to do. See, I agree that the law is good, and it is no longer I myself who does it, but it is sin that is living in me. 
Remember, this is St. Paul that's talking. Right? He's the writer of many of the books in the New Testament. And, and what he's saying is that no matter how hard we try to do good, it, no matter how hard we try to do the right thing, there's something that within us keep, that seems to stop us from being able to do that. And in fact, the more that he tried to do the right thing, the more he ended up doing what he hated instead. See, what Paul is saying here is that sin is more than simply just a set of your actions. Right? It's more than just your attitude. But what he's saying is that it's a power. And it's a power that has the power to enslave. See, later in the book of Romans, Paul, in fact, wants to even broaden our understanding and kind of reorientate even our understanding of what sin is. You know, for many of us, we think of the Christian life as sort of this list of, of do's and don'ts, right? We, you know, like, like hear some of the do's, like, you know, love your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. You know, honor your mother and father. Right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And some of the don'ts are, you know, do not steal, do not lie, do not murder. So we basically think that sin is if you don't do the do's and you do do the don'ts. I think that's right. Yeah, think, I, think, I, think that's right. I think that sounds right. So... Now, in the letter to the Romans, Paul addresses a situation in which some of the believers thought that it was wrong to eat meat. This is Romans chapter 14. You know, some, because they were vegetarians, and others thought that it was fine to eat the meat because they ate everything. You know, some were teetotalers where they didn't drink alcohol, and then others drank wine. See, if Paul simply believed that sin was kind of keeping these do's and not doing the don'ts, he could have easily come down on this issue, one side or the other, right? He could have said, you know, do this or, or don't do this, and it would have been case closed, right? Eat this meat or don't eat this meat, right? Drink this wine or, or don't drink this wine. Simple. But if you read the passage, he doesn't do that. And at first blush, it almost seems like he's giving this frustrating non-answer by saying something like, you guys are both all right, and why don't you guys just sort of get along, you know? The thing what Paul is doing here is that he wasn't being passive, but, but really what he was doing is he was redefining our understanding of sin. And in the verse 14, 23, the end of that passage, Paul writes that, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eating not from faith because everything that does not come from faith is sin. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. In other words, Paul is saying that any act or any attitude that shows our lack of faith in God is sin. Or another way to look at it is anything that we make higher or more important or higher priority than God is sin. Uh, I found this quote by Pastor Tim Keller that I found incredibly helpful as I, as I was kind of wrestling through this issue and, and what sin actually is. And and I found this incredibly helpful for myself, where it says, sin is not only doing bad things, see, but it's fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even very good things, more than on God. Whatever you build your life on will drive us and enslave us. And so sin is primarily idolatry. And how this shows up in our lives is going to look different, you know, for all of us. For some of us who, who base our identities or our worth from our work or our careers, right? So when we make this our most important thing, 
Uh, this could lead to being a workaholic, right? Or, or being one of those cutthroats at work uh, so you could kind of take, adva- you know, take advantage of every situation and advance in your career. For others, it, it might be your spouse or that relationship, right? When you make, the most, when you make this the most important thing, you, you might get emotionally dependent or, or, or jealous or, or controlling, and that person's problems quickly become your problems. And often you might get overwhelmed because of the things that are happening in that partner's life. For others, it might be your family or, or your children, right? And so when you make this the most important thing, you might try to live your life through your children and through their accomplishments. And one day, though, they might come back to you and resent you and ultimately feel, make you feel this ultimate sense of rejection. And when they don't live up to your expectations, often this might lead to, to mistreatment or perhaps even abuse. See, that's the subtle danger of sin because, you know, they can often be good things that can easily turn into the most important things, you know. And, and, and the vicious cycle is that the more that we have, the more that we want because the reality is, is that sin can never be satisfied. You know, when the rich businessman, John D. Rockefeller, was asked, how much money would be enough? His answer was, just a little bit more. See, and that's the power of sin in your life and in my life. The thing that we make the most important will never be satisfied. We're always going to want just a little bit more until it finally kills us. And so first, we need to recognize that we have a problem. And by ourselves, we are all in bondage to sin. And so the next question is, is like, what do we do about it? Right? Where do we go from here? And I think this is where many of us probably get stuck. You know, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, uh, I'm sure many of us are asking, you know, why do I still do the things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I want to do, right? See, we have to first recognize that we have a problem, but we also have to realize that we don't have the power to to save ourselves and to free ourselves. See, in the verse, in John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32, um, the text reads that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I want to draw attention just to a couple of words there. The words, uh, the truth, and my word. Right? My word, like the singular, and the truth with the definite article. So you think what Jesus is saying here is that he wants us to abide in him or to remain in. It's almost like a force field that envelops us to remain in him. Right? Sort of the essence of his word and his teaching. You know, and the essence of his word and his teaching always came back to him. Uh, for instance, in, here, are some, here are some of the verses. You know, in John 6, 3, 35, it says that I am the bread of life, right? In John 8, 12, he says that I am the light of the world. In John 10, 11, he says that I am the good shepherd. In John 10, 30, he says, I am the father. And in John 11, he says that I am the resurrection and the life. See, what God wants us to do is to remain in the word who became flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus. But he came full of grace and truth. And in John fourteen six, that 
You know, Jesus wants us to, to know him and to abide in him because he is the way and the truth and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through him. You see, we need to realize that we don't have the power to set ourselves free. And that we need to stay close. We need to stay connected to the source. Have you ever done something in your life that felt like it was a really good idea at the time? But after you went through with it, you realize, you know, maybe that wasn't so smart. Well, about 15 years ago, uh, some friends and I got together, and uh, we started talking about going on vacation together. Uh, you know, all of us had corporate jobs, and at the time, and, and we wanted to sort of get out of the hustle and bustle of daily life. And, and so we wanted to go somewhere sort of far away, right? It's a place that we could be sort of one with nature. And, and in Chicago, it's sort of cornfields and all that sort of thing. There isn't always a lot of nature around that's close by. And so one of my friends heard about this fishing and camping site in Manitoba, Canada. That was supposed to be this really rugged place. It was designed for really experienced campers because they had no electricity, right? They had no running water. In fact, they had no easy contact to the outside world. And so when we heard about this place, all of us were like, yes, that's exactly what we want to do. It's perfect. And so, you know, it's sort of going to be this men versus nature, you know, contest, Right. And where we'd live off the land, and, and, and we'd fight for our own food. And we'd be able to brave the elements. And, and so a few weeks later, you know, off we went. And so we made this 14-hour drive from Chicago to Manitoba. And I mean, when we got there, this place was really, really rugged. And we literally, we had to literally drive two hours into this deep forest just to get to the marina. And then from the marina... Basically, the guy gave us like two boats and a couple of uh, tanks of gas and a map and just said, hey, your island is 45 minutes inland into the water. And so we rode another 45 minutes and we got to our island. Now, when we got to the camp, you know, we we, um, realized that we had a bit of a problem. See, now there were five of us on this trip. And um, I guess we had found out that four out of five of us had never really gone camping before. And in retrospect, I think we probably should have done a little more research before we uh, went on this expedition. And so let's just say it took a little bit longer to sort of get our camp set up. And the other thing we realized is that, you know, four out of five of us had also never really done a lot of fishing before. Now, this wouldn't have been a problem other than the fact that, you know, we only had, our boats were relatively small and we only had enough food to kind of carry for a few days. And so we counted on catching fish to be able to feed us the rest of the way. The problem was, is that uh, a week before, there was this massive storm that came through the area. And if you know anything about fishing, when the water's level rise, it's a lot harder to catch fish. The other downside about the rain was that it brought about a lot of bugs and mosquitoes near our camp. And so we literally like, couldn't move our hands. We'd be doing this, and we'd just be swatting bugs like all day. And so because of this, because of all the bugs that were in the air, we, we, we rarely stayed on our island. And, and we spent most of the time, you know, in our boats, in the middle of the lake, during the hottest part of the day, right, with the sun beating down on our all day long, not able to catch fish. And so this week truly was a, a test of men versus nature. And in the end, I, I would say that nature sort of kicked our butts. <laughs> And so now you can imagine the, 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 the relief and joy that we all felt when we finally 
you know, we're about to go home, and we, the, the week finally closed, right? And so we started to pack up our things, and, and, and my friend started to look at the boat, and he noticed something. He said, hey, wait a minute. I think our gas levels are, are kind of low. And, and, and literally started freaking out because we're like, oh, no, we're 45 minutes from the marina. If we can't get out, you know, we're going to be stuck here. We're literally in the middle of nowhere, right, with no one looking for us, and we had no way out. And, and so, but finally, you know, uh, a friend of mine actually said, wait, 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 didn't we pack some extra, you know, uh, gas containers over there? And, and, and we're like, oh, yeah, 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 you're right, you're right, you're right. So we hid them, and immediately, you know, our sheer fear turned to exuberant joy. See, those tanks were, were literally our salvation. You know, those tanks of gas were our ticket to freedom. See, without the fuel in our boats, even though we knew the way out, see, we had absolutely no power to get out. See, even though we knew the path to freedom, we had no power to actually set ourselves free. See, we needed help. This is how it is with our spiritual lives as well. See, we don't have the power on our own to fight sin and live in freedom. See, we need that extra spiritual gas, right? The extra tanks to fill us up. You know, we need the power of the word and to be empowered by his spirit to set us free. As it says in 1 John 4, 4, you know, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And one of the greatest blessings that we can receive as followers of Jesus is that the freest being in all the universe pumps freedom into our lives. Pumps freedom into our lives. And if you don't, and, and if, you know, I don't know if all of you are followers of Christ, but if you don't have that source in your life and you're asking yourselves, why am I still going through these things over and over again? It's ultimately because you don't have the power and the means to change it. And so you need to power up. We need to stay close. We need to stay connected to the power source. So we need to recognize that we have a problem. We need to realize that we can't set ourselves free. And finally, we need to remember who we are in Christ. You know, I was really excited to um, kind of see some of the pictures of the India team, you know, on Facebook and, and the likes of just seeing some of the things that they were doing and the joy that they, that they had when they were out there. Um, as some of you might know, uh, my, you know, our family were short-term missionaries in India uh, for about a year. And, and, and so India is always, you know, very close to my heart. Um, when we were out there, uh, the church that we work with, they, they ran a nonprofit, and, and they had various ministries throughout the country. One of those ministries was in the Red Light District, in a town that we lived in. Uh, they focused their ministry on the eunuch population, and, and without getting into all the gory details, uh, it's probably most like our transgender population here in the U.S., you know, one of the saddest things that I learned about the red light district, and at least in India, and I'm not sure, and I'm imagining in many other countries, is just how many of the sex workers would return to that line of work even after they've been freed. You know, there are several reasons for it. You know, often, but one of the reasons why they would go back, one of the common reasons, is that they really didn't know any other way of life. And what I realized is that just because you are free, 
it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to live in that freedom. And so while we were there, my wife, Rebecca, got involved with uh, this ministry, and, and they got to know uh, a eunuch named Pana. Uh, and, and she had worked in the red light area most of her life. And after many years of working in this industry, and, and after the many years of, of abuse, and after the, the years of being taken advantage of, um, she got sick of it. She got sick of what she was doing. The problem was for Pana is that she really didn't have any other options. She had nowhere else to turn. In fact, she couldn't even get an ID card, a state ID card, because the government didn't know how to classify her, you know, or the others in the eunuch population, because she didn't fit into your traditional categories of male and female. And so this is where the, the church had stepped up, and, and they became Pana's advocate. And they were able to work with the local government and, and create a new gender designation called uh, the eunuch. And Pana was finally able to get her ID, which dignified her as an Indian citizen and her identity as a eunuch. See, but more importantly, this act of service by the church demonstrated to Pana that eunuchs were also valued and they were loved by God. And so it didn't take long for, for Pana to eventually decide to follow Christ. See, Pana not only had her identity with the Indian government, see, but now she also found her true identity in Christ. See, but today Pana still lives in the right light area, and she began working for the church, and her clientele has also changed. You know, now she ministers to other eunuchs who, um, you know, in her neighborhood, showing them love and, and being a friend that they could lean on and helping others find alternative work if they're at that point. You know, when they're ready. But she also leads this Bible story, or about this Bible study, sort of like a mini church service, where she shares about the way that, that Christ came into her life and set her free from her past. Right? Because she didn't want to let her past dictate her present or her future. And now Pana helps others find their new identity in Christ so that they could also be set free. My fellow Harborites, hear these words from the Lord. Second Corinthians chapter 5, where it says, Therefore, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. I'm going to say it again. Therefore, Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And I think one of the reasons that while we get stuck and we get caught in our sin and bondage is that we easily forget who we are in Christ, which is why we need to remind ourselves who we are in Christ every day. I know that many of us, we define ourselves by, by the least of who we are. Right? We, we, we tend to define ourselves, you know, based on our mistakes and our troubles and our regrets. This is true even with Christians. In fact, I know so many Christians who sort of have this false view of humility, you know, where they think the absolute worst of themselves. Right? Or they think of themselves as dirt or, or, or as worms. Right? I've even heard one Christian say, man, I'm just a piece of work. 
See, but that's not how God sees you and how he would describe you. You see, we are all made in God's image. And in Psalm 139, he says that we were fearfully and wonderfully made. In Ephesians 2, it says that we are God's workmanship. We are his masterpiece. And so you never have to think of yourself as as a piece of work, but you are God's workmanship. You are created in God's image to do his work. See, for those of us who are in Christ, see, we don't have to be defined by what others tell us other than what Christ has to or other than what Christ says. Right? And what Christ, and what Christ says is that if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. And we can declare the promise in Romans 6.14. Here it is. Is that sin no longer is my master. Because you are not under the law, but under grace. Can you guys say it with me? Let's say this together. Sin is no longer my master. Because you are not under law, but you are under grace. So one more time. Sin is not my master. Because you are not under the law. But you are under grace. And this is something we need to tell ourselves each and every day. That we need to be reminded of who we are in Christ. And here's the glorious thing. Is that today, today, right? This can be your declaration of independence. Your bondage to sin. It's a new trajectory for your life. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter how many times you failed. It doesn't matter what you think of yourself today. Is that if you are in Christ... Sin is no longer your master. You're living in grace. Not bound by the law. We need to recognize that we have a problem. We need to realize that we can't set ourselves free. And we need to remember who we are in Christ. And in a moment, we're going to take communion. I'm going to offer, ask John to come up in a second. And over the years, I've heard this, you know, many followers of Jesus who often abstain from taking communion because either they don't feel ready or they don't feel worthy to take it. If that's you, I just want to encourage you for a moment. And I want to suggest that you perhaps you still come up and take communion because communion was never meant to be a statement of our perfection, but it's really a statement of our imperfection. It's recognizing that we can't do this on our own and that we are not in this alone. And so as we receive the element, it's a declaration that God didn't come just to save us, but that he came to set us free. Because when the son sets you free, you are free indeed.